Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined by my co-host, another editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Lauren Euler about her debut novel, Fake Accounts. So part of the book is about her discovering that her boyfriend is secretly a conspiracy theorist online. And then I don't think this is giving anything away. Another part of the book is her going on a lot of dates and um, sort of taking on different personas. And it's an interesting book, a fun book to read. And I was wondering, Kate, if you ever took on different personas online. You know, not, I was thinking about this and the book reminds me just how kind of offline I am, even though I'm like a lurker online, but I don't re- represent myself very much online, except, you know, in email to, to friends, but I don't engage with persona very much. But when I was young in IRL times, I um, would meet people and make up crazy lies. Really? Like what? Oh, yeah. Like on the street, I would meet weird guys and tell them I was a runaway and tell them I was I had ties to the Playboy Mansion. And then I one time made up a lie to someone that I had gotten. It was a guy who I didn't want. I had given my phone number to, but I actually didn't want to be in touch with him. And I told him I'd been in a car accident and that half my face had been burned <laughs> off. And he still wanted to hang out. I couldn't get rid of oh. him with that. He said he, he would bring me flowers and we could still spend time together. So, I mean, this was all when I was like 14 or 15. And I kind of stopped doing that after a while. It didn't really work out, but it was fun. It was fun to lie. And it was a great way to meet people. Were, were you ever caught in it? Um, not really. No consequences. So well, that gives you an insight to how I turned out the way I did. And how about you, Dave? Did Have you ever lied online? No, I'm also not a very big online person, which makes us probably two of the worst people to interview Lauren because we're not really online. So I don't really represent myself online very much in any capacity, whether it's authentically or inauthentically. I did used to lie, I think, a little bit like that. Yours, Your lies sound fun. I feel like mine were a little bit more tame, like they were more aspirational. You know, I would tell people that I was like, Oh, I was like a college student studying English, but secretly I was a freshman in high school, you know, just smoking a cigarette outside. So my lies weren't that fun. They were just more of a, this is what I'd rather be rather than what I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I never got caught either. So lessons learned all around. Lie to your heart's content, listeners. (laughs) Definitely. And and that might be the message of, of Lauren's book as well. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk to her and see. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's listen to the interview. We're thrilled and speaking for myself, just a little terrified to be joined today by Lauren Euler. Euler is a writer and critic whose work regularly appears in magazines such as The New Yorker, Book Forum, Harper's, and The London Review of Books. She's especially known for her smart, brave, very funny, and sometimes brutally observed book reviews that are as intelligent as they are ferocious. Today, she joins us to discuss her first novel, Fake Accounts, which was just published by Catapult. 
Fake Accounts is a satire-reflected book about a young New York writer who discovers that her boyfriend is an internet conspiracy theorist. Set at the dawn of the Trump presidency, the novel has much to say about recent trends in language and literature and how being online shapes the construction of identity. Thanks so much for joining us, Lauren, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. So Lauren, I think there's a lot to talk about, but the first thing I guess, and I think probably many listeners will wonder is, what made you want to write a novel as a person who has been a very successful critic? Why get into the literary game? I think I always wanted to write a novel. I think that a lot of my sort of more notorious negative criticism comes from a place of at least feeling like I really understand how books work and what they can do. And when I feel that people are sort of wasting their opportunity to do something interesting with their book in whatever way they might, I get maybe irrational, <laughs> irrationally upset about that. And I also think that a novel in particular offers a lot more freedom and sort of leeway to do not just sort of criticism of a particular object, but like more social, broader criticism. And also I think you can just have a lot more fun with it when you don't have to deal with pesky things like truth, literal truth. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I really like some of the writing you've done. I feel like it's a thread through a number of pieces I've read of yours about morality in literature Mm -hmm. these days and kind of a performance of morality. I wondered if you could just maybe talk a little bit about your argument around that or some of your thoughts around that idea in contemporary literature and how you, you know, applied those maybe to this narrator in your book. Sure. I think that in many novels, many contemporary novels in particular that we're seeing today, you'll not necessarily have a sort of perfectly moral character, but the way that the book operates, it will sort of end up you'll end up having some sort of very pat moral lesson. There will be something said about the humanity of a character or someone is doing something wrong and we realize that they're doing something wrong. It's very clear that they've done something wrong and we know why that is. Just sort of very simplistic morality. And I think that that's one element. But something that I've noticed since I've started doing interviews for this book is that a lot of people ask me about making my narrator sort of quote-unquote unlikable. And... The unlikable female narrator has been a conversation in pop culture for a while now. And now we understand that we can't say she's unlikable and sort of dismiss her. But I think I'm increasingly sort of resisting even acknowledging that she's unlikable because actually I think she's she's actually immoral, right? Like she's not, I don't know that she's necessarily like so not fun to be around. What is disturbing about her is actually that she is doing blatantly bad things. And I think that this sort of reaction to her relates to this idea that like literature needs to be sort of idealistic in its morality, basically. Does that make sense? Totally. Well, and maybe just elaborate on, because I didn't know if I thought she was doing so many bad things. She didn't seem to be the most feeling person, let's say. Yeah, I think. I think she does sort of pathetically bad things, right? Like she, so if you haven't read the book or heard anything about it, she discovers her boyfriend is an internet conspiracy theorist. He's quite popular. Before she plans to break up with him in a sort of valiant kind of devious way because she wants to have the upper hand. And before she can do that, something happens. And then she moves to Berlin and starts becoming a compulsive liar. And she makes up sort of fake personalities when she goes on a bunch of OkCupid dates, right? And I think, 
in various ways, you could say that what she's doing is kind of bad, right? Like she's being deceptive. And I think some of the guys she goes on dates with are more or less normal and she's sort of playing with them and not not being super feeling and not being super open, I guess you could say, right? Whether we think that's immoral, I guess it's open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting part of the book because it occurs to me that probably what a lot of people feel is unlikable because you're right. She's kind of fun. She's funny. Mm-hmm. She's a little bitchy, maybe a lot bitchy. She's irreverent in a way. She's very smart, but she's not emotionally performative person. Mm-hmm. And she very much avoids actually any kind of emotional performativity. Like she seems like almost like allergic to, to like, and that I think can be really frustrating, particularly even when you have a heroine or a hero that you don't particularly like very much usually they do allow you some kind of emotional experience with them. And she very much doesn't really let you do that. Right. And I can see how people might interpret that as unlikability. <laughs> right. I think too, like what I'm thinking, I think that that makes sense. And I, I think she's doing that for a reason because she's in this world, which is our world and this culture, which is our culture more or less, where people really want that from you. And I think they really want it like prematurely a lot of the time, right? They're sort of demanding that you have some catharsis and you can sort of talk about all sorts of things in this way, like the personal essay blog boom of the 2010s, right? Where there's always like a big lesson where someone learns something personally and it also hopefully has some relationship to do with politics or whatever. And she is just sort of sick sick of it. And I think she also sort of has a connection with her boyfriend, Felix, when she discovers he is operating these sort of, this conspiracy theory account where he has a lot of followers and he's just sort of being deceptive. She, I think, connects with his desire to do that. And she understands, I think, immediately why he would do it, even though she has to sort of perform both to the reader and to her couple of friends that know about it, that she's like, oh, it's terrible. Of course, he. I would never do such a thing. It's terrible that he's doing that. But actually, she says, you know, I completely understand why he would do this because everybody is sort of performing this. They're doing these, making these sort of banal performances of their emotions and their connections with each other all the time. And it's extremely alienating for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe as being a person who's not really that much online, because I never understand actually like, who I'm supposed to be, you know, who I would be speaking to exactly. And just second guessing why I would even post something because it does, it's not, it doesn't seem quite authentic ever, you know? So um, how much do you think that the character's construction relates or mirrors the way we, or, you know, people who are really online, which I guess most people have to perform on the internet. Like what are the expectations for you of being a figure, a public figure online? I think what's sort of interesting about what you're saying, which is that you, it makes total sense that you wouldn't want to post anything online because everything that you could possibly do is fake. And I think, too, when you're on the internet for a little while, you start to realize that there's this sort of endlessly iterative audience. And so you can always construct a new audience. So you can always have some fans, right? But you're also always going to have some people who hate you and reject whatever performance you're putting on. And then you're going to have a more or less endless number of people who just go on forever, who could possibly be in either camp or never know who you are, right? Like if you, I wrote this article recently about semicolons and I was trying to look on Twitter for people who were arguing about semicolons and I couldn't find anything because the only tweets that come up when you search semicolon are 
about a K-pop band called Semicolon. So there's this like, you know, if you sort of like get into the internet, you start to realize like it actually starts to normalize your perspective on the world because it prohibits you from having a local view, I think. But in terms of what that does, what that does to you personally and sort of emotionally, I think it's quite overwhelming and disorienting and probably very harmful, both on a personal and on a generational level. I'm just curious, just because you you have so, I think, bravely, especially as someone starting out, just skewered, you know, big writers, what kind of online response you've had? Like, I actually noticed because everyone, I was like very impressed by your negative review of Gia Tolentino's book in the London Review of Books. And um, I feel like everyone I knew was like, talking about it. And you did go offline briefly, right? After you published that. Yeah, I'd actually went offline before. It was very serendipitous because I went offline like before they assigned it to me. And then everybody was, not everybody, but like the 12 people who gossip about me on Twitter are <laughs> were like, oh, she deleted her account because she knew she was going to get criticized or whatever. But I actually, while well, I was looking at Twitter when this happened, and I always have these sort of like fascinating social experiences online, which is to say that you can sort of watch people and they think that you can't see them, but actually you can see them. And I think actually that some of the more hurtful things that people said about me, which is to say that people that I vaguely know in some capacity or another no one would have said those things if I had quote unquote been there, right? Like they thought that I couldn't see even though I could. So from that perspective, it's interesting. And I sort of am compelled to look at it all the time from this theoretically sort of sociological, like, oh, it's material kind of thing, but it's also very sad. But to the point about, you know, being brave and writing critical reviews and things like that, I think I just try to do, you know, say whatever I actually think and, and to pay close attention to the text and do it justice, even if I'm criticizing it, so that I don't feel like when someone is saying something negative about me that they're right. <laughs> you know, I can easily refute a criticism of me. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. That definitely makes sense. Now, one more question. What is it like mm-hmm. being now on the receiving end of criticism, you know, good and bad for your own book? I mean, it's fair. I think that I have always had, what's interesting about Twitter in particular, but also in the sort of ideal of the book criticism world is like an idea of reciprocity, right? So like it operates in a similar way, which is that if you condition out, you have to be able to take it. And so I think I was prepared for sort of the worst because of my reputation as a harsh critic. And then that means that I'm always, I would assume, even more happy when I get a positive review because I understand that that's not a foregone conclusion. But I've also just sort of been kind of happy. People are going to be like, she's lying. But but it's been sort of nice to see that the book provokes genuine conversation, as far as I can tell. Like, there have been a lot of different kinds of reviews and people saying the sort of opposite thing. And obviously, I agree only with the positive interpretations, but it's very rare, I think, for a novel to come out to produce this much sort of criticism at the beginning, and it's so divisive. And I think that that's healthy. I mean, I think one of the things that perhaps is inspiring all that conversation is some of the impenetrability of the character. But I was wondering what earlier you mentioned that you wanted to take the opportunities that you saw other writers not taking. And I was wondering what 
often what you felt like those opportunities were if you were seeing a sort of, I mean, it must, one of those things must be a thorough sort of examination of the kind of affective effects of like social media and that kind of stuff. And and I think I agree. I don't know if I've ever read a novel as invested in that, but what are some of the other opportunities that you feel like other writers just aren't taking and are missing? I mean, I think the reason why I like my novel and the reason I wanted to do a novel was because I wanted there are lots of sort of truths about life on the internet and sort of life, contemporary life that are kind of beneath the level of concern of an essay and that I think would be sort of unethical to write about in nonfiction without being sort of really experimental and really sort of camouflaging who you're talking about and what's going on. But the thing I was interested in in relationship to this sort of affective of social media and the sort of social dynamics it produces was like a very basic novelistic thing, which is that I wanted to have, you know, show relationships and to demonstrate, allow the writing to demonstrate like what happens on the day-to-day individual level. So I don't know if that's an opportunity. It's also, you know, often the books I review are nonfiction. And so those are, that's obviously a completely different set of concerns. And I also just think people are not really going for it in the the way that I hope it's clear that I'm really like pushing the limits of what I can like try and figure out within a 300 page book and sort of trying to do interesting things with language and not being afraid to do a a weird paragraph or a long sentence, but also not being afraid to like use more internet-y language in an interesting way. You also poke fun at a big trend now in contemporary literature, which is the fragment and a novel that's told, you know, in fragments and where you're saying basically like you can put anything in because the the form doesn't resist any kind of observation or content just because of the way it's set up. And so there's actually a section of the book where you take that form on for yourself. I'm wondering, maybe you could talk a little bit more about why that fragment form annoys you and um, other trends In literature here, you know, we're talking about the moral performance and the tidy arc of a character. What other things do you see constantly that irk you a bit? Well, okay, so fragments, I'm going to have to think about things that are irking me currently. I think there's just generally, and you can say this with things that are written in fragments and things that are not, but I think that there's generally, I would almost call it like a nihilistic structural element to novels a lot of the time, which is that There doesn't seem to be a lot of thought about why you're juxtaposing certain things together in the book and why, what's the relationship between the plot and the form or like what's the relationship between the style or the narration and the content of the text. And I think what irks me about the fragments is that it's a sort of big example of that tendency, which is that it's kind of, and it seems to me kind of selfish which is to say that when I was writing the fragments, it was really fun because I could just like whatever thought I had in my head. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like I'll just stick it in my fragment section. And it sort of ends up, it ends up kind of working because you don't need a lot of transitional glue in there. And it's not to say that people don't do it well. I think that there are examples of people doing it well, and it's obviously not a new thing, but I think it's so trendy because it's the first thing that's at hand because it's such an obvious sort of parallel to social media and our sort of fractured attention spans and all that. And that's why I think we should resist it if possible and not just sort of do it because it's easy. 
and it's kind of fun to do. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's a very, it can be a very lazy way to write because as you point out in the book, you're just letting the reader sort of make the connections between the fragments. And so the reader inherently can imbue it with as much meaning as they want to. And you don't ever have to really spell it out for them as the writer, which is the hard thing to do as a writer, which is like actually spell it out. I think too, like that's what happens online as well, which is that you're encouraged to sort of interpret tons of meaning into these like little tiny things that actually don't matter. And every sort of news item or every sort of piece of gossip or whatever carries this huge significance and everybody sort of becomes like conspiratorial, but also it's very flattering to be the person who is making meaning out of basically nothing. And I think that that's probably why everybody's walking around being very flattered and being very proud of themselves because they're creating narratives out of what's happening on their Twitter feeds. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Lauren Euler, author of Fake Accounts. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Elizabeth Colbert on the line with us today. Elizabeth's new book is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. And she is here to give us a book recommendation. Uh, Elizabeth, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend for this COVID-induced homestaying time, A Spillover by David Qualman, uh, hmm. which is a really great book, which predicted this all. It was all laid out in 2012 by David Qualman. It's about the way we interact, I'll use that word, with animals, both domesticated and wild, was, and the way we live, a totally globalized society, was bound to create one of these spillover events which, in which a disease jumps into the, you know, from an animal population into the human population and was also then designed to go global. And he absolutely, you know, foresaw exactly what has happened here. And I will also recommend, because David Coleman is a really, really wonderful writer, one of my favorites, his earlier book, The Song mm. of the Dodo, which is about our sort of changing the rules uh, of what is called island biogeography. It, it sounds very... Uh, complicated, but it's really just about how we've scrambled the whole world by moving things around uh, and by cutting things up and how that's really changing the course of evolution. It's a beautiful book, a wonderful book. You'll learn immense amounts and you'll also have a great time. And both of them share that quality of being very, very richly informative and just wonderfully well-written. Thank you. That um, Those are very good recommendations. Elizabeth, will you tell us the name of the author and the title of the books again? Yes. So it's uh, David Quammen, uh, Q-U-A-M-M-E-N. And the books are uh, Spillover and The Song of the Dodo. Thank you. We've been talking with Elizabeth Colbert. Her new book is called Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lauren Euler, author of Fake Accounts. Yeah, that was another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is that there's a there's a part in the book where 
the main character remembers being a kid and she loved Harriet the Spy and I also loved Harriet the Spy. Though I don't remember this the mean notebook thing at all. Somehow this like totally escaped my memory. But anyway, she... This is a very long way of saying that at the end of that passage, you say something about, well, she was actually something worse than a little bitch who didn't know what she was talking about. She, This is verbatim to listeners. Mm-hmm. I'm not just calling the, the narrator a little bitch. Um, <laughs> but she was a little bitch who didn't know what she was talking about, but she didn't care because it was getting her attention. Mm-hmm. It was making her the, the center of attention. And so there's also that part of the equation, which is, Suddenly the focus is on you, even if you're not really saying anything that is truthful, meaningful, or appropriate, or, or not, none of those things. She also seems to have this really kind of fraught relationship with attention and both not knowing what to do with it and desperately needing it. At the beginning of the book, she works for a sort of Vice Gawker, Mike Vox I imagine it as all those things I work at Vice. So people are like, it's like Vice. Sure, fine, whatever. And she describes her sort of day-to-day, what it's like to work in the office. And it's sort of like behind the scenes of the horrible internet that we look at every day. And everybody in the office is sort of fun, but they're also, it's very downtrodden and a little bit like neurotically bored, if that makes sense. Like they're very touchy, very on edge, but also just desperately bored and like so sick of everything that they do all the time. And then sometimes this results in like fun absurdity, but most of the time this is just um, a particular kind of monotony for them. Um, And I think that she sort of like learns to want the kind of attention that comes from that kind of job, which is that you want this certain kind of praise. It's always has a dark side, which is that at any minute you could sort of be destroyed by the internet for some arbitrary offense, right? So you're constantly worried about like little details and all of the things that you write. And, and you're also having to write like two or three articles per day. So you don't really have a lot of time to worry about all the little details, but actually they're considered vitally important because they can ruin your life. And, and you always sort of hope that they will make your career in some way, but that means that when everybody ignores you and they they neither cancel you, to use the, the term of the moment, or sing your praises and give you a job at the New York Times, it's like, it's this really sort of horrible spiral of disappointment. So I think that that's where her, one of her relationships mm. with attention comes from, which is a sort of complicated relationship. But um, the Harriet the Spy passage, um, I think demonstrates that she has this natural proclivity to want attention in all forms, right? And I hope too that it makes it clear that this is not just an internet thing. Like the internet didn't make this. Like we, you know, people have this in them and and it would manifest without social media. Well, I think that's one of the things in the book is that even though it's a novel where, you know, the, what happens online is a big propeller of kind of what happens in the offline in the, you know, part of the novel that takes place just in the day-to-day and what happens between characters, it doesn't seem to be a novel that's um, too fascinated by the singularity of online culture. And it, you know, it actually doesn't get so deep into specifics. It seems to kind of just extrapolate mood um, more than uh, real idiomatic things. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that aspect in, you know, writing something 
timely, especially also setting it at the dawn of the Trump presidency. If 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 you wanted, if it was more important to you to kind of capture something that felt like very historical or of the moment, or you know, is is this just kind of have connections to a, a longer plot arc and. I think that I liked the challenge, like the, the idea that you couldn't really write about things that were happening right now because they would become really dated. And also I thought, you know, actually the themes, the themes of contemporary life last a lot longer than the news items, which, you know, rapidly cycle. But I think that the social elements and the sort of emotional elements and the novel stuff of the novel hopefully will kind of endure. And I think that I got really specific with the time period and I made it sort of hyper focused on like even specific dates at times um, or, or she's often sort of being like, it's the middle of March now when I'm telling you, she's telling you in retrospect. So she's narrating in past tense. But she is always sort of being like, "This is now April." Elif Batuman's "The Idiot" just came out. <laughs> just came out. That kind of kind of little details, because so that that way it operates like historical fiction if and when it needs to, and then it also I think hopefully makes um, another subtle point about the sort of specificity of the era and then the way that we operate online, which is to say that you can Google things and get details really easily. So you might have like these more specific ideas about the era, particularly as we're all sort of also like rhapsodizing nostalgic about the recent past on the internet as well. So you might be talking about like 2000, the early 2000s, right? And (laughs) versus the late 90s and things like this. One of the, I mean, this this is how you start your book, but one of the things that you write or the character writes that characterizes the era is that we're heading, if this is not already the apocalypse, we are heading to the apocalypse. And that comes up really over and over again in the book, at least in the sense of like self-obliteration, if not on a global scale, you start off on a global scale, but but in terms of the character and without giving anything away, the other people that she's surrounded by, there's this constant sense of a deep desire for self-obliteration, for just getting rid of this. I mean, I think there's also a part when she talks about just the phrase, I wanted to kill myself, comes to her. <laughs> and it just comes to her as a phrase <laughs> rather than like a deep desire or something that she was going to act on. But it just emerges as a thing. Um, <laughs> and that really struck me because that, that seems to be happening to her in particular over and over again, but to many of the characters in the book, if not the entire globe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to ask about that because that that seems a, a, like a difficult, it seems like a difficult space to inhabit, like a difficult mental space to inhabit for a long period of time mm-hmm. because that can be so, that can just be so dark. (laughs) And so I wanted to ask about that, but also what do you think that, I I think I can guess from the book about where these things come come from, but for you, where do you think this like the self-obliteration drive is coming from? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think collectively we've had, you know, we're constantly having apocalypse fantasies and they sort of rise and fall with the times and, and, whatever and for the last 
five years or so, it's been like doomsday, you know, central. So when I wrote that first paragraph where she's talking about the world, you know, the world's about to end, that was in the middle of 2017. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the pandemic also. So I was like, phew, the world's still ending. It's not, no, nothing has gone back to normal in the time frame. But I think when you're constantly being told that the world is about to end, which which if you're sort of vaguely um, news savvy and, and online all the time, you're, you're constantly being told that you need to be afraid and everything is really bad and you need to be doing something about it. So there's this like real pressure and I think there's this real desire to opt out or, or to obliterate or to self-annihilate in some way. Um, and I think it certainly relates to the sort of drive to constantly perform online and to, mm-hmm. and to be successful in this sphere that you don't even know what success is, but also you definitely know what failure is. And in some way, if you don't fail, it means that nobody cares about you either. So it totally makes sense to me that you would want to disappear from this space in whatever way possible. And I think that when she's, ta- when she's talking about the phrase, I want to kill myself, she is talking about in the context of working at this blogging job, right? Like she wants to make a big statement, right? Like a literal statement, she, the, I, the little phrase, you know, I want to kill myself. She wants to show everyone that she like means business, right? And that this life that she's living is not really sustainable. And I think what makes the sort of banal performances of everyone around her so painful is that they have to sort of really sort of paper over these kind of horrible feelings of alienation and, and depression and things uh, and anxieties with this like terrible like internet argo combined with like therapist worksheet style like getting to know you or sort of feeling your feelings kind of stuff and it's just totally particularly because I think some of it is at one point was taken seriously and it, it was the things that we talk about online are like mostly politics and, and occasionally culture. And those are things that people at one point actually did genuinely care about. Uh, so it can feel at times that that is the first step into like true hell or the true apocalypse, right? But it also just struck me as, as really childish. You know, there's something very childish about this desire of witnessing other people grieve for you. Um, and and being <laughs> having the privilege of um, you know being dead and not dead at the same time, yeah, um, and and like sort of wanting to you know I think the the, protect, the narrator wants this very badly but resists it right, and I think yeah. that this hopefully this comes through not to get you know this comes through if you, you know by the end that there are a couple of options for dealing with this, but you know it doesn't mean that she's still happy. You know, it doesn't mean that she learned something. It just means that she has to go on and, uh, but the book does end. <laughs> I definitely didn't feel by the end that, you know, she had changed very much or that I, I couldn't see her heading for now, like a golden sunset or anything. It seems like she was still stuck with her hangups and issues by the end. Yes, but do you think that she does at least 
enroll in German class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, we haven't really talked about how, you know, a lot of the novel is set in Berlin and, and by the end, right, she's doing something that seems at least more constructive by trying to learn another language and focusing on something else besides the internet. You know, to that effect, there there's not that much sensuousness in the book, you know, that I don't, she doesn't get lost. This character is not you know, aesthetically rhapsodizing about a building, you know, or um, she's in a foreign country, but she's not, doesn't seem to be taking that much pleasure in in anything in particular. And um, even in her relationship, you know, before she decides to dump her boyfriend, it's, she's never so subsumed into it. You know, she doesn't, we see her a little bit happy um, at some points, but she's kind of resistant to, uh, this union with someone else. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like this weird irony of the internet is it's this like unbelievable collective space that still seems to foreground the individual and that as much as can be done, you know, in this collective space politically with organizing all these things that it's not a great place for kind of having the, the edges of ourselves break down. It's not like a, deeply thoughtful place, but it's certainly kind of a front brain thinking place. I mean, especially in relation to this character who just is always thinking about how she's being perceived, you know, in every which way. So Mm -hmm. I I wonder just for you, I mean, maybe in relationship to the character, but then also for you personally, like if you have any idea of like this space changing, if you ever think about like reform or what that could look like, or if, if, you know, if the internet has like a more productive future in your eyes, or if it really is just going to be this place of kind of like, I don't know, like occasional glimpses of beauty, but lots of cheap thrills and kind of mean digs, you know? Yeah. I mean, I kind of think that I don't see how it could, could reform in a sort of social way. I think maybe sort of like, from an economic perspective, I think there are some very, or, and sort of like just a political perspective, there are some very basic things you can do. Like if we had this European right to be forgotten thing in the United States, that would be great. Like there are all sorts of things like that. But I think, and I think too that there are increasingly movements to like get offline and to like delete your social media or whatever. But I sort of have this feeling, and, and this comes from, I think someone reviewed my book or interviewed me or something. And, they quoted Hotel California, which is that you can check out, but you can never leave. And I think increasingly that what happens on social media, particularly on Twitter, which tends to get this reputation for being like the least popular and therefore the least powerful. But I think that that's sort of misguided because all of the sort of most influential people <laughs> in politics and the media and culture and and you know any in academia as well, like increasingly are on Twitter and and getting their ideas in one way or another from Twitter. So I don't think that you can say like, oh, well, we need to just encourage, you know, we can just encourage everyone to like log off sometimes. And there will be people, great people out there who never have a Twitter account and never have an Instagram and therefore they don't know what's going on, right? Like it's, it's still happening and it's still doing this stuff to us, unfortunately. 
I forget the other part of your question, which is, do I, you were asking if I have hope. And then of course that I had to say no, uh, <laughs> I forgot the first part of it. Well, that's, that's enough. Just no hope. Where do you go from there without any hope? <laughs> no, over. Don't have hope. Um, it will keep, I think, I think that the world will not end though. If that is counts as, um, hope, I think that people are really terribly resilient. So but we just don't know. I don't, I don't like to, I don't like to try to be too predictive because it, you always get embarrassed because it's always like dumber and weirder than you could have ever imagined. Right. Yeah. I did think that, you know, probably I think having no hope is like absolutely makes the most sense. I did think her trying to learn German at the end seemed like a sort of a step in the hopeful direction. I know that sounds like very, um, in the grand scheme of things, extremely minor, t- taking a German class. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, there was where it, at least it feels like what she's doing is acknowledging the existence of other people. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, like throughout, I, I you know, if you haven't lived in another country where you don't speak the language, you're probably not going to care that much about these passages. But throughout, she's constantly talking about how absolutely humiliating it is to have to be in any kind of normal context where she basically can't function, right? So she's like, I can't go to the grocery store because it's humiliating. Like, I can't buy cigarettes because it's humiliating. And, and there's all these sort of like things about her not speaking German. And if you've ever spent any time in Berlin, you know that there are quite a lot of people there who don't speak any German, even though they live there for many years, oftentimes. And it's sort of accepted that this is how it is and you don't actually have to participate. You can you can sort of set the terms of your engagement with Berlin. So her like enrolling in a German class is, I hope, yes, a very small, like totally insubstantial sort of happy ending kind of thing. Um, but it is an indication, I think, that she's not like a complete nihilist and she's she does sort of want, have to have some kind of hope for the future. Uh, and I think too, she's kind of, what there's some line about how she's happy that she, can, she can't have like elaborate fake conversations. She has to like only talk about like, her hobbies and and what she where she went on vacation and things like this some sort of basic language class sentences to the power of the of the unknown language yes, yes. totally yeah uh, and thank you so much Lauren for being here and talking with us today thank you for having me it was really fun thank you Lauren thank you we've been speaking with Lauren Euler author of Fake Accounts thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.